Good morning. I'm being hit with this very visceral memory this morning. From 30 plus years ago when I moved to Portland after finishing college and was enjoying settling in here and I was working in the community largely with the unhoused community in Portland and um, connecting a bit here though I was in that space where I wasn't too sure about the organized church anymore but Ralph Lind pastor at the time was a mentor and Ralph one day said Eric you know we should should get you to come offer a sermon Sunday morning sometime and I looked Ralph straight in the eye and I said there is no way I am ever going to preach a sermon, <laughs> let alone at Portland Mennonite Church. I've kept en enough in touch with Ralph through the years. We both chuckled at that memory and how the story has unfolded. So I invite you just to pause for a moment, maybe take a couple deep breaths. Uh, you might even close your eyes and imagine that scene on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, how you might imagine it. People fishing, tending nets. And just imagine that for a moment, and I'll read a couple of these verses one more time. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he went a little farther. He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So this is one of many, many scenes in the gospel accounts that I have to say, I sure wish I could have seen how this really played out. I have to admit feeling a little skeptical. It was quite that easy to get these career fishermen to drop their livelihoods, leave their families, and go on this journey with a complete stranger, no matter how alluring or charismatic he may have seemed there on the lake shore. As far as the first disciples go, I, I have a little more affinity for Nathaniel. Over in the Gospel of John, you might remember that in that story, Jesus calls Nathaniel's brother Andrew first, and then Andrew comes and finds Nathaniel and says, Hey, we just met the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel replies, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> and so I imagine Nathaniel leaping over into Mark's gospel and standing here on the lakeshore and watching this scene unfold. 
And Nathaniel saying to Peter and John and James and Andrew, whoa, whoa, slow down. At least do a background check on this guy. Get some references on him. Doesn't the fish for people line sound a little weird? What if he wants something from you? What if there's no turning back? Now, of course, we can't know exactly what happened there. Um, We can't know what that decision point looked like, how it was made. But we do know that those disciples would soon learn Jesus wanted a great deal from them. And that, in fact, there was no turning back because this decision that was made changed everything. As they embarked on the way. Here we meet them at the very beginning of that way as they respond with this bold yes, having no clue where it would lead. They had no idea that this journey would lead them to encounter Samaritans, tax collectors, scribes, centurions, members of the powerful Jewish Sanhedrin, their world would be blown open by all these encounters. They had no way of knowing that Jesus of Nazareth had no interest in assuming some earthly throne of power or authority. They had no way to know that the way would mean letting go more than accumulating, surrendering more than claiming control, loving more than judging, embracing more than excluding. They couldn't know that. They could not know that their hearts would be irreparably broken on the way. That they would come to know unbearable pain and unspeakable joy. If they had known all that ahead of time, if they had known the full cost of discipleship, to use Dietrich Bonhoeffer's language, would they have said yes? That's how it is with life, right? As we come to our various decision points, both the big ones and the little ones, and sometimes the little ones wind up being much bigger than we ever thought as life plays out. But as we come to those points, we have no foreknowledge. We bring our our hopes, dreams, expectations. We bring our fears, anxieties, worries about what might come, what might play out. But... We have no assurances whatsoever. We always enter each moment on faith as perennial beginners. William Stafford, who is a wonderful poet many of you may know, whose life spanned the the windswept prairies of Kansas and the wet woodlands of the Pacific Northwest. He taught at Lewis and Clark College much of his career. I see smiles and heads nodding. Many of you know William Stafford. He wrote this wonderful short poem about this stepping into life in faith, and he entitled it, Yes. Here's his poem. It could happen any time. Tornado, earthquake, Armageddon. It could happen. Or sunshine, love, salvation. It could, you know. 
That's why we wake and look out. No guarantees in this life. But some bonuses like morning, like right now, like noon, like evening. So much can happen in this life. And some of those things provoke our fear, our anxiety, our worries about what could happen. And they provoke an impulse to want to say no. No, I want no part of that. No, I'm not going to preach a sermon at Portland Mennonite Church. And yet there is something deep within our being. Call it the image of God. Call it the ground of love. Call it whatever you will. There is something, I, we might call it the place of yes that's here. Deep at the center, untouched by the pains of life. That enables us, in the midst of all the fears, worries, anxieties, to wake up, to look out, and to say, at least, okay, I'll take that next step in faith. Yes. Yes to life. Yes to love. That deep, holy place of yes. That's what Jesus was calling to. I think of, I had this other image this morning as I thought about this theme. I thought of my father-in-law, Irv Kaufman, who many of you knew in this congregation. And I had this image of Irv at the card playing rook and fanning out his cards and looking across the table at his partner and saying well should we risk it or should we go for it (laughs) yes it's that place that jesus called to he didn't give them a roadmap. He didn't give them measurable objectives. He didn't give them a strategic plan. He gave them no assurance of success or failure, and by all accounts, in his lifetime, it looked like complete failure. He invited them instead to a way of being and coming fully alive in love. That is the way. That's how I would summarize the way. It's about coming fully alive in love. And I would say, sadly, unfortunately, the church, the church has too often morphed that invitation and turned it into something so much smaller, so much less. As the church has invited people to say yes to things like personal piety that looks on the world in judgment, or a highly individualistic salvation that fails to nurture beloved community, or to say yes to dogma and structures of the church that really look more like our human powers and principalities than anything Jesus seems to have envisioned. I think the church has too often been the biggest obstacle to the very invitation to love that Jesus asked his disciples, asks us to carry into the world. As a prime example, I think of that letter that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from the Birmingham, Alabama jail cell to members of more um, moderate, 
even, quote, progressive white churches there in the Birmingham community. I know last week I, I joined you in worship um, through streaming online, and I know Ra uh, Rod mentioned that he makes a practice every year at Marth Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Day to reread this letter, and it's, when I heard that, I smiled because it's a similar, I try to have that same practice of reading this letter. And I choose this letter because it remains such an uncomfortable, humbling challenge. Because I remember each time I read it, I could very well have been among its recipients. Could very well have been among his intended recipients. And I want to read just a few paragraphs from that letter, perhaps not the most familiar ones, but ones I think the church needs to hear today. Dr. King writes this. He said, I've been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. I've watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues the gospel has nothing to do with. And I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It's so often the arch supporter of the status quo. And far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of the way things are. And this last paragraph, I really invite you to hear because I just hear him, he could have written this today. All of the letter, and sadly. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century, 21st century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. I wonder if the letter were written today, or if King were here today, like, what would the message be? Would it be different? Would it be sadder, more brokenhearted? I believe he's echoing there that same invitation of Jesus, that call to repentance, yes, but more an invitation into that place of yes. Yes to the challenge of being in community. Yes to radical generosity. Yes to humble receptivity when we know our own need. Yes to the pain that comes when we meet our world with compassion. Yes to the joy that comes when we join together and know our common humanity. A yes to the work of building a just peace for all. A yes to the loving engagement with life as it is, not as we wish it would be. A loving engagement with life just as it is, moment to moment. 
I think saying yes to life right now with love is heartbreaking. I'm finding saying yes to, to living into this world as it is right now heartbreaking. I don't know about you. And I think if we're really alive and awake to what's happening in the world right now, our hearts crack open. And I truly believe that's where the church needs to begin right now. As the church as a whole is going through what I would call a time of reformation. The church in all its forms, local and large scale. Our own time of reformation. And I think we have to begin in that broken-hearted place because to begin elsewhere, to begin out of fear, um, protecting, anxiety, if we get too trapped in those places, then the church becomes something else entirely. I think we're seeing it right now in this country in Christian nationalism. How the church itself can can get twisted into something so full of bigotry, hatred, violence. Thomas Merton once described faith this way. He said, faith is sorrow pouring itself out in love and trust. Faith is sorrow pouring itself out in love and trust. That makes sense to me in these days. And I would add to that, it means pouring ourselves out in love and trust, not by ourselves, but in community. I think if we can allow our hearts to be broken together, then I, I have hope for the church still. I do. I, I wouldn't be doing the work I do right now if I didn't have hope for the church. I have hope because of congregations like this. Nobody pays you to come here. Unlike a lot of the places we gather out in the world, there aren't a lot of incentives given here, although this is a place where needs get met, thankfully. But you aren't paid to come here, and this is an unusual place, the church, because you gather here with people you probably wouldn't otherwise choose to gather with out there in the world. At least often that's what I experience in the church. I'm asked to come together with people I might even sometimes avoid. And together to figure out what does it mean to be beloved community? What does it mean to together turn toward the world like this and to even welcome others here or meet them where they are with love? What does that mean? And to struggle in that together. The invitation of Jesus has never been an invitation to go off and do things on your own. But always one to come together to struggle to disagree, seek clarity, discern, face fear, serve, and seek the healing and peace and wholeness of all. And I really believe that how we treat each other here has everything to do with how we treat the world and vice versa. These things aren't separate. And to commit and to tend to a healthy 
community of faith in a place like Portland Mennonite Church is to take part in tending a healthy world. Last week, Rod, as was acknowledged, he shared with you his intention to retire after 25 wonderful years of ministry here at Portland Mennonite Church. The time has come for change for Rod and Molly, for, for this community of faith. And I know last week, too, as Colleen wisely named, you are, as a congregation, being invited into what she said is a liminal space, liminal threshold space, space of transition, beginnings and endings, change, possibility, and entering that space together as we as an earth community are in liminal space right now. So much change, so many endings, new beginnings and possibilities, so much pain and brokenness and beauty. Christ invites us into the fullness of it all. Things that feel overwhelmingly great and things that feel impossibly small, Christ invites us into the fullness of it all. Should we risk it or should we go for it? May we together say yes with great love. There are no assurances of success or failure. There will be pain. There will be joy. There will be brokenness and beauty and the great messy fullness of life because that's the way. That is the way to which we're invited. I'm going to close with one more poem. This one um, from Sherry, a friend of mine, Sherry Hostetler, who together with Sarah Augustine, uh, some of you know some of their work. They're both part of the wider Mennonite church. Um, this recent book, So We and Our Children May Live, Following Jesus in Confronting the Climate Crisis. Um, Sherry is a poet, and she wrote a poem at the beginning of this book, and I came across it as I started reading this week. And it was so fitting. Say yes quickly. Say yes quickly before you think too hard or the soles of your feet give out. Say yes before you see the to-do list. Saying maybe will only get you to the door, but never past it. Say yes before the dove departs. Yes, she will depart, and you will be left alone with your yes, your affirmation of what you couldn't possibly know was coming. Keep saying yes, you might as well. For you're here in this wide open space now, no walls, certainly no roof, and the door was always an illusion. May we say yes. Amen.